Amen, amen. Well, hey, go ahead and grab a seat, grab your Bibles, and flip with me to Exodus. And, and hey, we did this last time, but I want to do it again. You can't see them because they love being behind the scenes and they're just kind of sitting over here in the shade. But uh, there is people that now for over six months have made this service happen week in and week out. So yeah. So if you see Jonathan or Tyler or Josh or whoever after service, again, just thank them, encourage, give them a gift card or something like that. Maybe, I don't know, you guys like Starbucks, Target, where, where do you prefer? Tyler's laughing at that one. He does not want to hear that. So, hey, Exodus chapter 33. This is actually our 20th and final sermon through the book of Exodus. Uh, 20 weeks in one book, all online. We anticipated that, uh, but praise be to God for what he has done in Exodus. The sermon title for today is The Good Life. We're calling it The Good Life. And hey, uh, back there, the Gatos, Rick, give me a thumbs up. Can you guys hear me clearly? Okay, very good. We just want to make sure of that. Uh, Here's why this is going to be the last uh, sermon in Exodus. Uh, Exodus goes through chapter 40, but chapters 35 through 40 are actually a repeat of the tabernacle that we heard uh, just a few weeks ago. And it's it's not that we don't want to preach that again. It's it's just that uh, we we are going to consider again what it means for God to be present with us and present with his people today. And that's what the tabernacle's all about. Okay, so Exodus 33 for. Here's the big idea for today. God is best to you and God is best for you. Not only is God the best person in the world to you, but he's also the best person in the world for you. So that's kind of what I want you to lodge away in your mind as we walk through this text together today. And, and there's a song that we sing quite a bit here at Story Church. You've probably heard it. You've probably listened to it. Uh, it's from the Austin Stone. It's called Jesus is Better. Now, there's a reason why we sing that song frequently. And there's some lines in there about Jesus being better than all suffering, Jesus being better than all victories, Jesus being better than all money. Jesus being better than all relationships. And and now I don't want to throw the stone under the bus because we love them and their intentions are to proclaim the goodness and glory of God. But we want to take that to the next level and say, not only is God, not only is Jesus better than all these things, but he is best. To say better might mar- might say he is marginally better. He is, he's a little bit better, but everything else uh, can kind of compete with him. But what we want to say is, is Jesus has no rivals. You just heard that he has no equal and he He is truly best to us and best for us. And so I really don't have an outline for today. So just kind of journey with me through these couple of chapters with that phrase in mind. God is best to us and God is best for us. All right, so grab your Bibles, Exodus 33. I'm going to read verses one through six. God's word says to us, the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Nailed it. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should Go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb and onward. 
All right, so some context of where we find ourselves in Exodus. So God has delivered his people from bondage, delivered his people from Egypt. He continues to draw dwelling among you. God gives himself fully over to his people through the tabernacle, through the priests, through the sacrificial system. And they, he makes a way for them into his presence. And then as we saw last week in Exodus 32, the people of Israel fail. They construct a golden calf as an idol to worship, to make sacrifices to, to bow down to. And then Moses will intercede on behalf of Israel. He will go up and commune with God and see if he can make atonement for the sins of the people and restore right relationship with God. However, at the end of chapter 32, we read this phrase where, where God speaks to Moses and said, says, nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. In other words, God is speaking to Israel and saying, the penalty of your sin is forgiven. You are no longer condemned. You are no longer punished, but there are still consequences for your actions. There's consequences for your sin. And what are those consequences? We read it right there in verse three. God says to Moses, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. That's the consequence. They can go to this land that God is not going to be there with them. Now, I want you to imagine with me, what is the best life possible? What is the good life? What is the life that you always dream of when you're just allowing yourself to daydream? If, if you're anything like me, and if you've been discipled by culture, like, like all of us have, where the marketing messages and, and the commercials and the advertisements will tell us that if you buy this water, man, you're going to have the good life. If you buy this product, you're going to have the good life. And, and all, uh, all of these products and all of culture is telling us that the good life is found in getting as much money as possible. That money is the thing that will fulfill you. Nothing else can truly satisfy you. Or maybe it's fame, being known and admired. Maybe it's complete sexual promiscuity where you, where you try to find your freedom and giving yourselves over to others for approval and for affirmation. Maybe it's freedom where you can be completely autonomous, right? That's the messaging in our culture today. Discover the true you. And once you do that, uh, you, you're going to have the good life. Maybe it's material belongings. Maybe it's no consequences for your actions or your words. Maybe it's a life of ease, a life of athleticism or intelligence or, or being artistic or being the most beautiful person on earth. This is what culture is saying. This is where you find the good life. If you have any of these things, whatever you want, once you discover those things, then you're going to have the good life. I recently watched a show called uh, World's Toughest Race. Has anyone seen that? It's on Prime. Andrew, thank you. I could have guessed that. Uh, now, World's Toughest Race, it's, it's this 10-part series host, hosted by Bear Grylls. Now, we know who Bear Grylls is, right? Like this survival expert. And he gets these teams of four people from across 66 countries. They go to the island of Fiji, and, and for weeks, they just race through hundreds of miles through Fiji. They're hiking, they're biking, they're kayaking, they're boating, they're rowing. It's truly World's Toughest Race. And, and in the first episode of that show, they're doing interviews views of different teams. And they're asking these teams, why are you doing this race? And no matter who it was, the same answer was given every time. I want to be an inspiration. I want to be admired. I want to be seen. I want to inspire people from my country, people from my language, people from my people groups. I want to tell them that 
if they set their mind to it, they can do it. And once they do it, they're going to be an inspiration. People are going to be wowed by them and they're going to have this good life. Now that's, that's all of us, right? The irresistible pull of culture for all of us is to turn inward on self, to be self-centered, self-seeking, self-worshipping. And we want everyone else around us to look at us and be wowed by us. We want to be the object of worship. And that's where we find, quote unquote, this good life. But that's the life that God just promised to Israel. We heard it there. Uh, We're going to take you up to this promised land. I'm going to drive out all of your enemies, the Jebusites, the Hivites, all all of these ites. We're going to drive them out of the land uh, that I promised to you. And it's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be a life of ease, a life of comfort, a life of resources, a life of belongings, a life where you're truly going to have your heart's desire. But the key stipulation is that I'm not going to be there with you, Israel. This is what God is speaking to Moses. Why is God not going to be there? Well, God says to them, if I go with you, I will destroy you on the way up there. I will wipe you off of the face of the earth. Why? Because you are a sinful and fallen people who are worshiping a golden calf and not following after me, but I'm still going to give you this land that I promised to you. Now, wouldn't this be a tempting offer for any fallen human? Like, I think if God were to speak to me and say, hey, hey, Travis, here's what you're going to get. You're going to get the the easiest marriage that ever existed. You're going to have the most well-behaved kids ever imagine. Here we go. We're live. The the easiest kid, that's where God's shutting it down. It's like, that's not happening. You guys know Owen. You guys know him. I'm surprised he hasn't turned something off yet. Uh, You're going to have the easiest kids in the world. Man, your church, it's going to grow. It's going to be easy. You're going to have staff to do things. You're never going to have financial strain, relational strain. Everything's going to be easy. But listen, Travis, I'm not going to be in it with you. How tempting is that offer? Imagine for yourself, what is it? Is it the guy? Is it the girl? Is it the job? Is it the house? What is it that God could promise to you and say, hey, you will have all of this, but you're not going to get me? How tempting is it to want that? Jesus says it this way in the book of Mark. He says, for what does it promise or what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, but lose his soul? What does it profit any of us to have this good life in our minds, but not have our Lord, not have the presence of God? Let me translate this section for us. You can have everything you ever wanted, but if you don't have God, you have nothing. You can have everything your heart has ever desired. But if you have not Jesus, we truly have nothing. A guy in the Old Testament that goes by the name of Solomon had it all. Wisdom, money, wives. That sounds exhausting. Wives, plural. He had belongings. He had homes. He had all of it. And then he writes the book of Ecclesiastes. And what does he say? All of this, it's like vapor. It's meaningless. It's useless have not God, we have nothing. Thankfully, Moses was a good leader for the people of Israel. And in verses seven through 11 of chapter 33, he goes back into the tent to commune with God and to make intercession. And so here is what he says to God. Go to uh, Exodus 33. Let's read verses 13 through 16. Moses speaking to God. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he, God said, 
My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Here's what Moses is doing here when he's talking with God. He's giving this incredible... God, what makes us distinct from all the world is your presence. We can have everything, but if we don't have you, God, then we're not distinct from all these other nations. And God relents and God says to Moses, okay, I'm going to go up with you into that place. Now, in the Hebrew, Work. In the Hebrew, when God says that response back to Moses, he is speaking to Moses in the singular. He's saying to Moses, I will go up with you, singular. But Moses doesn't want to stop there. Moses comes back and says, no, no, it's not just me, God. It's me and all of Israel. We corporately are your covenant people. So I'm still not going to go up unless you go with all of us and you let all of Israel come to the promised land. And then again, God comes back and says, I will go with you. But that the second time God says, I'll go with you, it's not in the singular, it's in the plural, where God is saying, I'll go with y'all, Israel. We're gonna go up to this promised land. So I'm still gonna drive out the enemies. We're still gonna have a land flowing with milk and honey. We're still gonna have this place I've promised from centuries past, but I will be with you. So we're confronted with the question right off the bat here in this text. God or the stuff that comes with God? Do we want Jesus? for Jesus's sake, or do we want everything that comes with Jesus? Again, how tempting would this offer be for the good life? You can have the house, you can have the marriage, you can have the kids, you can have the job, you can have, but if that's all you're going to Jesus for, then you're not truly getting Jesus. You can have nothing and have Jesus and have everything. Here's Pastor Mike McKinley commenting on this passage. He says this, it's worth asking ourselves, if heaven gave me everything, the job, the guy, the car, the health, the wealth, but Jesus wasn't there, would I be content there? Or if heaven gave me nothing except Jesus, would I be satisfied? Deep down, I think I often answer yes and no. That's because I love other things too much and I love the Lord Jesus far, far too little. I feel like I could just read those few sentences and walk off and we could all just sit here and repent and, and wonder, man, do I truly desire Jesus or do I desire the stuff that comes with him? But I like talking and we're gonna keep moving here goodness will pass before you. And then God says, I will have grace upon who I'll I will have grace upon. I'll have mercy upon whom I choose. So God begins revealing aspects of his character and his nature to Moses. Well, what, does he, what does he first do? Well, he says, my goodness will pass before you. Our God is good. Our God is absolutely and always and forever good to his people. He says, I will have grace upon those whom I choose. Our God is gracious, mercy upon whom I choose. Our God is merciful. And then God continues in four, and we get to one of the key passages of the whole book in Exodus 34 verses five through seven, and God reveals who he is to Moses in the full. So Exodus 34, five through seven together. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. 
The Lord passed before him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. I've read that again. Sorry, guys. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, for iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. We learn a lot about who this God is here in this text. So I just want to rehearse it with you. I feel like I'm going to knock this tent over. I'm going to move a little bit this way. All right, here's what we learned first. Our God is available to his people. Where do I get that? Verse five, the Lord descended to Moses. Here's the truth. We do not ascend to God. He descends to us. We don't work our way up to God. Every time we try to do that, we get exhausted, worn out and weary. But our God in his goodness, he descends and makes himself known and available to his people. Times in all ways, our God descends and makes himself known. The text continues and says he is gracious. So what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor, unearned kindness from our God towards us, that he gives us what we do not deserve. He gives us his salvation. He gives us his presence. He gives us his life and we do not deserve it. The text says he is merciful. What is mercy? Mercy is God withholding from us what we do deserve. And what we do deserve as fallen sinful humanity is condemnation and wrath and punishment because we have failed to fulfill the demands of God. We have failed to be obedient. We have rebelled against him. And yet God in his mercy does not give us that punishment, but instead he says, here's the life of Jesus in my grace and in my mercy, you can be saved through Jesus. The text says that God is slow to anger. This means our God is not easily riled up. I think about myself as a father. If I go a few nights without sleeping well, if, if it's been a long, hard day at work, if, if things are just kind of challenging in life, uh, unfortunately, at times, my, my kids can be the object of my anger, lashing out easily, grumpy towards them when they do something a punishment they don't deserve for that. But our God is slow to anger. He does not easily get riled up against us. He is not grumpy. He's not waiting for a chance to pounce on us in our sin, but instead he is merciful and gracious. The text says he is abounding in steadfast love which means he's overflowing, abounding, overflowing in a patient love towards us. What does this mean? When we mess up, he still loves us to the max. When we mess up, if we mess up, as we mess up, our God still loves us with an abounding, patient love. It says he is abounding in faithfulness. This means our God will never give up on us and he will never abandon us. He will never let us down. He will never turn his back on us. He is abounding in faithfulness. The text says that he keeps these things for generations. What does this mean? This means our God is unwavering. He is unwavering in his commitment to us. He keeps all of these things simultaneously without a break. Our God is unwavering in his character towards us. It says he is forgiving of transgression. He forgives us fully and freely and forever through the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is in our, in our God's nature to be moved towards compassion and forgiveness, not anger. Our God is just, it says, he will not forget the unrepentant sin. 
Our God is the God who rightly punishes those who walk in unrepentant sin. Our God is the God in his justice who will make all things right, who will make all sad things untrue. And I will not worship an unjust and unjust God. As I look out in the world, I see injustice. I don't know about you, but my heart feels disheartened by all of these things, disenchanted by all these things. But we know we worship a just God who will make all wrongs right. And then it says he keeps this from generation to generation to the third and fourth generation. This is the Bible saying our God is eternal. He is outside of time. He is uncreated. He has no need. He is dependent upon no one. He is limitless and we are limited. And for generation to generation, God is, God was, and God will be. This is who our God is. And the Bible will go on to tell us he is unchanging. So what that means for us is the very words that he spoke to Moses here in Exodus 34 are the very words he is speaking to us because he is still the same. As we think about nature and, and character, we, we can just look out and we can see the trees. What, what are the, what are the, what's in the character and the nature of trees? Well, well they give us fruit. They, they blow wind. They give us oxygen. They suck water out of the ground. A tree cannot act like a dog because a tree is a tree. And our God in his nature can never cease to be these things. He is always these things. It is his very nature. And let me remind you of the context of these promises from God. What did we just look at last week? Exodus 32 the construction of a golden calf to worship and make sacrifices to as an idol. And on the heels of that, here is God revealing himself saying, it's in my nature to be forgiving and kind and gracious and abounding in patient love and abounding in faithfulness. And I will not change and I will forever be your God. This is shocking. And it should give all of us worship of our God and his scandalous, beautiful grace towards us. And then God will continue through Exodus 34 and he will read the covenant with Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and I am your God, Moses. I am the God of Israel and I am the God of my people forever. And then Moses will come down off the mountain and the Bible tells us he is radiating the glory and goodness of God. His face is shining. He's on cloud nine because he just encountered this God. And the Bible tells us that Moses is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who radiates the glory of God, who radiates the nature of God, who radiates the goodness of God because he is God. Look, look at a couple of verses with me. It should be in the liturgy there. Second Corinthians four says this, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give this light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where in the face of Jesus Christ. Hebrews one, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us who? By his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of, the ma of majesty on high having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent to theirs. Jesus embodies 
all of these characteristics. Jesus radiates the very glory and goodness of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. So if you're wondering, what is God like? The answer to that question is you look to Jesus. If you want to know who God is, look to Jesus. How? Well, let's look again at these characteristics described in Exodus 34 and how Jesus embodies those. God descends to Moses. It is Jesus who descends from heaven's throne, enters into humanity, comes into this muck and this mire up in this mess. Why? To save his enemies, to save those who have rebelled against him. It is Jesus who descends into humanity. Jesus is the grace giver, giving us what we do not deserve. Jesus and Jesus alone is the one who can save us and gift us with his righteousness, a righteousness we have not earned and a righteousness we can never never earn, but he freely gifts it to us because he is gracious. Jesus is merciful. What does that mean? It means that if we deserve punishment and wrath for our sin, Jesus in his mercy takes that on his shoulders on the cross and he bears the full weight of our punishment and we don't get what we deserve. Instead, we get his righteousness, which clothes us. So when God sees us, he doesn't see our failures. He doesn't see our resumes. What he Christ. He is merciful. Jesus is slow to anger. Again, he possesses a righteous anger when his people are being hurt or his, or his name is being hindered. But with his children, he is not quick to get upset. He's not looking for a chance to pounce. He doesn't want to punish us. Instead, he pours out and lavishes upon us his good love. Jesus is abounding in steadfast love. This means his love does not run out ever. End of story. The Bible tells us that faith, hope, and love, of, of faith, hope, and love, faith and hope will run out. There will be a day when we see Jesus in our resurrected bodies and our faith will have its sight as we look at Jesus and our hope will be standing right there in front of us as we look at Jesus. But what endures among those things? Love, love will forever endure because Jesus is abounding in steadfast love. Jesus is abounding in faithfulness. Jesus, here's the truth, Christian. Jesus is way more committed to you than you could ever be to him. And his commitment level is not based upon your worthiness or your track record. His commitment is based upon his word, which is set in stone and forever unchanging. Jesus is abounding in faithfulness. Jesus is unwavering. His eyes are fixed upon you, your needs, your desires, your hopes, your dreams. And Jesus isn't going anywhere. Jesus is forgiving. I need this. You need this. The, the, the scandalous truth of the cross is not just that Jesus died for our sins past, but Jesus also died for our sins present and future. Jesus willingly took up the cross and hung in our place, knowing not just, I'm getting too animated, I think, not knowing not just the sins we would commit before he saved us, but also knowing the sins we would commit after he saved us. And yet he still chose to die for our sins. Jesus is forgiving. Jesus is just. Jesus takes the cross we deserve, bears the penalty that is ours, takes the wrath of God that we should have and satisfies the holy demands of the father in our place. Jesus is eternal. 
Jesus is uncreated. Jesus created all things, sustains all things. He is outside of time. He is boundless and he is limitless. And because you are united to him, you are forever with him, the eternal savior. And Jesus is unchanging. The Bible in Hebrews tells us Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when you hear these words spoken to Moses, hear them spoken to your ears that this is who your savior is and it's in his nature and he is far more committed to these things than you are. And isn't it so good to be a Christian? And as we think about the good life, the life that culture tells us we should have and want and desire after, I can't think of anything better than this to worship and follow a savior who's abounding in love, who is forgiving, who is just. If we want Jesus for something other than Jesus, we don't actually want Jesus. In getting everything, but not getting Jesus, we get nothing. But in getting Jesus and nothing else, we have everything we could ever need or want. Why? because only Jesus can withstand this life. The Bible tells us that suffering, it's not, it's not if, it's when. The Bible tells us temptation, it's not if, it's when. The Bible tells us it's with trials, it's not if, it's when. And I think about everything culture tells us is the good life and how none of those things can withstand the pressures of everyday living in a sin-fractured and broken world. Listen, think about this. We can have all the money in the world, but money will never purchase a life freed from sin and a life freed from shame. But Jesus has done that. He has purchased a life where we are freed from the power of sin and we don't need to live in shame wipe that away. Money could never buy that for us. We could have all the fame in the world and still be the loneliest person on the planet. But when we're with Jesus, he's always with us. We're never alone. We could have a life of of sexual promiscuity and complete autonomy, and we might experience temporal flashes of joy that are never satisfying. There's always a letdown, but you know what the Bible tells us? When we are satisfied in Jesus, that is a permanent, palatable, and forever satisfaction that only he can give to us. When depression comes, the job we have, the relationships we're in, they truly waste away and mean nothing. But the Bible tells us that when depression, anxiety, Anxiety, whatever comes our way, Jesus runs straight into that and says, I will comfort you in the affliction and I will be with you through the affliction. When disease, diagnosis, debt, divorce, death, whatever it might be, no matter how rich, how pretty, how smart, how athletic, how artistic we might see ourselves to be, we will still feel the pain and the torment of all of those things. We could never truly numb those things. We try to escape, but we never could. But guess what? Jesus has it with stood all the pain and the torment that you and I could experience. And he says, I'm your high priest right with you in the middle of that, carrying you through it. Jesus gives us the truly good life. Culture might tell us there's ways to have a good life, but the good life is only found in Jesus. Listen to this quote from Charles Spurgeon. You will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything but Christ. Say it again. You will never know the fullness of, fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything but Christ. So what is the good life? The good life is found in knowing that God is best to us 
and for us. We could have everything we ever desired, but if God says to us, I will not go there with you, it means nothing, church. We should willingly abandon all to get more of God. We should willingly say no to good things to get more of God. Why? Because he is best to us and he is best for us. If we need a picture of that, all we do is look at Jesus. How best to us. He is best to us because he saves us from sin through his life, death, and resurrection. And he is best for us because only he can satisfy church. We must long only for God. He is best and the good life is found in him. So as we close out the book of, we look back on the journey of the Israelites in bondage, saved by God. We are in bondage to our sins, saved by Jesus, drawn into the presence of God through the tabernacle. We now are the tabernacle, the presence of the Holy Spirit for God. What's the future for the Israelites? Forever displaying who this God is by being satisfied in him alone. And as we consider what's next for us, church, well, we don't know what the, the methods are going to look like. We don't know what, are we going to be inside, outside, how long, live stream? We don't know, right? Life right now. But what I do know is next for us, Story Church, is we're going to say to God, if you're not in it, we don't want it. If you're not there, we're not going. If we have to do this without you, God, I don't care what the numbers look like, we're not going. So we're gonna go and get after God together. So we're gonna move church back to in-person community. We wanna invite you, do that. Get more of God through that. Get in community with people through prayer and through presence. We're gonna get back to in-person prayer and church. This is the primary place where our theology gets worked out, where we are truly saying, God, you're all I want. Where do we do that? In prayer. We go after God together. We're gonna invite you to be on the lookout for that. We're gonna be doing this each and every week. And listen, uh, the, the first few weeks of COVID, everyone was like, oh, I missed the gathering. And then we got a few weeks in. It's like, hey, it's kind of nice to sit on my couch. We're back at 9 a.m. We're outside. It might be a little warm. We're sitting in tents, but guess what? This, this is where we say no to other things to say yes to more. God, he is best to us. He is best for us. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, we love you. And we think again to this quote from Spurgeon. You will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything but Christ. God, many of us have tasted the emptiness of the things of this world. Life of ease, life of comfort, money, whatever it might be. We've seen the emptiness and as Solomon says, the vanity of those things. So God, I ask that you would help us turn from those things, look to you and say, you and you alone are the satisfaction of my soul. I'm gonna say no to all things in order to say yes to Jesus. God, I pray you would make us a church where our single-minded pursuit is saying, yes, God, we want you. If you're not in it, we're not going there. We love you, in Christ's name, amen.